John chapter 11, verse 55. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. Well, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now, both of the, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. Then, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, there they made him supper, and Martha served. Shocker. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. The poor you will have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. And they came not only for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see, also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, which seems to be the most futile thing. Jesus already raised him from the dead once. They could just keep killing him, he could keep raising him, and it just seems like the, a very futile endeavor. Because on account of him, that's Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, you teach us in Hebrews that your word is active, living, and powerful, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow. Soul and spirit is a discerner of the intents and thoughts of the heart. And you tell us, Lord, that your word can cut and can divide that which needs to be divided, that, Lord, which would seem inseparable under other situations, Lord, your word can place a wedge between that, Lord, which seems intertangled, which perhaps in some cases shouldn't be. And Lord, I know that when we read a text like that, there is a certain batch of people, passionate, furtive, by nature, that read this and go, yay, a text about me. And then there are others who read a text like this and go, oh yeah, that's my sister getting the spotlight again. But I pray that's not going to be the case today. That no matter where we're at, you speak fluent us. That we could understand every word you have to each of us today. So Lord, even as you tell us in Revelation, let we who have ears, may we hear. May we hear what your spirit would say to the church today. May we take it in, drink deep of your grace, and walk out of here so encouraged, so revitalized, so refreshed, so equipped that we say, yes, that was what I needed. So, I ask you to immerse me in your spirit, Come upon me to do through me what I cannot humanly do. 
and speak in such a way distinctly but spoke to each of us that we would be convinced this is as it's intended to be specifically for us today. So Lord, meet each one of us. Save, equip, challenge, exhort, rebuke, correct, do what you need to do. But Lord, in that, may we find ourselves more like you, more in love with you, and more equipped and more fortified to serve each other as you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures and by those scriptures, test everything. John chapters 12 and 13 start with someone at the feet of Jesus and end up with Jesus at the feet of his disciples. It is now, as we see in our time stamp at the beginning of chapter 12, the six days before Passover. And we're in chapter 12 of a 21-chapter book. Which means the first 11 chapters of John have taken place in the three and a half years primarily of Jesus' ministry have basically all been covered in half of John's book. I remind you, John is writing this 60 years beyond the time that he encountered Jesus dead and resurrected. Now John is able to write, if you will, as an amendment, a commentary, if you will, on filling in the gaps of spaces when he reads the other three Gospels that says this needs more attention, and John certainly spends it on Pesach, the Passover. As a matter of fact, every chapter of the Gospel of John leads us to this celebration. From the gathering of the distant relatives, to the lighting of candles, to the preparing of wine, to the bread that is prepared, to the separation of the lamb, all of the things that we have seen in these last 11 chapters prepare us for this Passover that God has been having his people celebrate for 1,400 years. But it's interesting to think then that means that the second half, if you will, of John, well, at least the next 10 chapters, are a week long. And they're actually not even specifically the week in greater detail, but specific moments in greater detail. To give you an idea, Matthew actually spends three quarters of his of his letter, of his gospel, before that last week. In other words, only a quarter of the book is dedicated to that last week of Jesus. Mark, it's actually he has he gets two thirds of the way through. Luke gets four fifths of the way through. He's eighty percent through his gospel before he actually gets he actually spends ten chapters, roughly from nine fifty one through nineteen. He actually spends those on Jesus' walk down. That's his focus. But John, he gives us this. And this is how it starts. The setting, as we see in chapter 11, verse 55, is that the Passover of the Jews was near. Of course, it's so near that it's six days prior by the first verse of chapter 12. Now, it tells us in that verse, look at it with me, that many came from the country up to Jerusalem, up because Jerusalem is on a hill, and no matter where you go, you're going to rise to Jerusalem. They went there before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, there are points to be made with this, and it's kind of, again, we're trying to place this setting before we see this amazing event that takes place in the first handful of verses of chapter 12. Now, find this with me. The country bumpkins are made their way now into Jerusalem. Now, there's a reason for it. They don't have the same type of, well, benefits, if you will, or luxuries that a person living in Jerusalem would. Now, in Jerusalem, there is the temple, and with the temple, there's the sacrificial system. So at any given point, when you become very conscious of your, mis- your misdoings, you're, you're messed up, 
You could offer a sin sacrifice. But it isn't like you can do that if you live in Galilee. So you have the majority of the people who are not living in Jerusalem making their way in. Now, now understand, and it's, there's a couple texts, for what it's worth, there's one in Numbers chapter 9, verse 6, because there were a couple people that had defiled themselves with a dead body. It is one of the things that makes you ceremonially unclean, so they actually couldn't eat the Passover at the prescribed day. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 18 tells us that there had been other people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun who had actually done the same thing, and actually... They had actually done the Passover, even though they weren't supposed to, because they were ceremonially unclean. I'll address that in a moment. And what will happen in that particular case is that Hezekiah would pray for them because they recognized it was a sin for them to do so. Now, what God knew before man did, well, everything. Let's just start with that. But no matter how brilliant a scientist thinks he is, he will always play catch up with God who knows everything. When God writes, for instance, that you made everything out of things that weren't seen, that makes a lot of sense today as we discover things like atoms. But it didn't make an awful lot of sense when it started. Drawing a circle on the face of the deep and he called it earth? Well, we were the only ones who actually knew the earth was round, by the way, at least according to Scripture. Now, all of that to say this. That God has this way of trying to describe that to country bumpkin like ourselves, if you will. People that may not necessarily just be quick to the take. And what God showed us is that there are certain things that have contagions on them, things that make us contagious and dangerous for that. Do you realize when the Black Plague hit here, there was only one group of people who weren't dying, and there was actually the Orthodox Jews. Do you know why? Because they were the only people that had been instructed, according to their law, that if you touch a dead body, you should actually bathe. Now, today that seems a little weird to us, because most of us, or at least some of us, walk around with like that hand killer, you know, germ killer that we, like, it's like nice to meet you. We shake someone's hand and then privately. I don't do that, by the way, just so you know. I'm going to shake your hand and I'll keep your germs on me. But, but understand, there is this concept here that, that God knew that there were certain things that made you either susceptible to somebody else's disease or made you, in essence, a danger to somebody else that could be susceptible. Profluvious people, in other words, people who emitted some form of fluid, uh, menstruating people, new mothers, when you touch the dead body, for instance. Those were things that basically you kind of should separate yourself after that. Now, the reason was God knew that when you were going to be in that particular position and then you were going to go and go be hugging people and greeting each other with a holy kiss, kind of like Italy, well, you kind of know at that point, man, you're rubbing off on people that, won't, that aren't going to bathe for quite a while. And you know what can happen is an epidemic could start instantly, and you don't want church to be the place where an epidemic like that starts, or in this case, the temple. Now, that was the external. But that was, in essence, typifying something else, the internal. See, what God was trying to tell us is that there are, in the same way as there are physical contagions, there are emotional or spiritual contagions. Sin, pride, selfishness, self-centeredness bitterness. God says those things are also contagious. And as a result of that, we were to take some careful inventory. Now, obviously, there was the inventory of, did I touch a dead thing, for instance? Okay. Now, we're not talking about, did you have dinner? Because, let's face it, no matter who you are, it's going to die sooner or later when you eat it. But, regardless of what you're eating. But it was like something that was on the road, and you're like, oh, wow, there's a dead lion. I should maybe stroke it. I don't know. You're, you know, we have family members that are like that. They find dead things, and they're like, let's grab that. But in Psalm chapter 24, it says this, 
Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He with clean hands and a pure heart. Notice there was both. Who hasn't raised up, by the way, soul to an idol? Now, the idea was simple. That you wanted your hands clean because I didn't want whatever was on me to get on you. But then there was also this internal aspect that I did a little housekeeping on. And I took some inventory and I said, well, let me ask, am I showing up in fellowship in this state? Now, here's the crazy part. Believe it or not, you're supposed to get that right, hear me, with God and not the church. See, what God actually intended was, is that when you had these issues, you actually dealt with them before God, before you showed up at church. Not if I show up at church and by the third song, maybe I won't be so grumpy, and maybe by the end of this I'll walk out a nicer person. And you actually dealt with your personal issues to the greatest degree before you got here, because what it did is it predisposed you for praise once you did. And so what you did is you kind of, you know, you would, you would consider these things and then you would go and you would offer a sin sacrifice because you realize, you know what, God, I'm actually, I mean, I came into this thing thinking I was bigger than that and now I realize I'm a doofus like everybody else, sinful jerk, and I really need to see this sin off of me. <clears throat> so you would take the, the you know, you would, you would offer an animal and that animal then, the, the priest would confess your sins on the animal and they'd slay that animal in front of you. You'd watch this and go, wow, that is horrible. You go, well, that's what my sin deserves. And you would go before God and say, all right, God, help this to really sink in. And then you'd do this strange personal outward expression. You would immerse yourself in this thing called a mikvah. A mikvah was a ritual bath. And the idea was you had already cleansed your heart. You had already sought to have all of that sin laid on, the, on this innocent animal sacrifice on your behalf. And it wasn't like you were going to get naked in front of everyone else and go, hey everybody, I'm going in the water, now watch me, because that would be weird to this day. So who were you telling? You were telling yourself. You were walking in there and you were immersing yourself in that water and when you came out, you were a different person. You were saying just the same way that this happened physically, this is what happened the moment my sin was laid upon that animal. I get that. It's one of the reasons, and, we, and it's the precursor, obviously, to the baptism as we know it. Uh, there are several other things that will play into it and the idea of this public identification. But in both cases, it's an outward display of something that's already taken place on the inside. That's the key on this. But now, here's the problem. If you lived in Jerusalem, you could do that any day of the week. Well, you can do it some of the days of the week. The Shabbat, it would be a little bit off. off limits. On the other side of that, though, if you were kind of heading in, and every able-bodied Jewish man was required to actually go to these three feasts, and the first of them being Pesach, Passover. Well, you have to imagine that it probably queues up pretty quick. It isn't like everybody just goes, all right, everybody, who's next? I mean, you obviously realize there's an awful lot of people waiting for those ritual baths. By the way, to this day, they still found 48 of them right at the southern steps of the temple. So people would go early. And they would go early because the idea was is that they wanted to be ready for Passover and they wanted to be in the proper state as God required. Now, I find it interesting in this, and it's a simple precept, that the cleansing is more than just for yourself. By the way, it's actually for everyone else. You're aware of that, right? And in the same way, wouldn't it be awesome if next week we all got our hearts right with the Lord before we showed up here so that we actually weren't nasty to the person next to us? Well, with that in mind, in response to that understanding, 
we would enter his gates with thanksgiving and we would approach his courts with praise. Why would we praise him? Because we're praising him in response for this amazing cleansing and forgiveness that he's given us. That's the point of this. But unfortunately, not everybody's in that particular position. Unfortunately, at this particular position, we realized that there were some, the whitewashed tomb, the whitewashed tomb religious leadership, had done it only with this outward piety, but had not really sought the inside propriety of being right with God. As a matter of fact, that's why God will say here, it wasn't the Passover of the Lord, like God had intended it to be a feast of the Lord, but rather it was a Passover of the Jews. Not the celebration of the slaughter of the Lamb of God and the death of the first begotten for the deliverance of God's people. People are talking. And I find it interesting. Notice in our text, it says that people came to, be, came to be purified and it says, and then they sought Jesus. Did you notice that? Isn't it interesting? Sometimes we could be in that place where we're actually so convoluted by our own sin that we actually aren't actually seeking Jesus. What we're seeking is Jesus' peace. His joy, his power, his whatever, but not actually seeking him. Now, there, just because you're seeking Jesus doesn't mean you're doing it for the right reason either, and we see that here as well. People are talking. And they're, the people who purified themselves, they on their hand, they're looking for Jesus, and they say, well, isn't he going to show up? Now, please understand why they're saying this. Because every able-bodied Jewish man is supposed to show up, and Jesus has kept the law as far as they can see since the moment that they've known him. So this would be really strange, and in essence, it would be uh, kind of an affront to the law of God to not show up at this Passover. So they're like, well, he certainly is going to show up, right? I mean, come on, he's done everything else, right? He's going to do this, right? But on the other hand, notice it says that they're not the only ones looking for him. On the other side, there is this council, the Sadducees that are the priests, and the Pharisee lawmakers, the Seventy, the Schedron, as we saw, that those that sat together, and the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, uh, the 71, they've agreed to galvanize the wrath of Rome on a single man and in a gesture of allegiance to them. All Israel's rebellion against the kingdom of, of Rome hung with proper recompense inflicted upon a single sacrifice like Yom Kippur. And I think it's interesting because if it was the entire council, there were people there like Nicodemus, and we already know that he's had an encounter with Jesus, and we already know that he is privately a disciple. What did he say when they talked about this? Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy, prominent man, also of the council, what would he have said about this? And I realized that even among the council, there were dissenters in that group. Now, Jesus has his own feast. Now, we do have a time stamp here, six days before the Passover, and if Passover was to start the day before Sabbath, as we saw it uh, in our text, well, that puts us then at a Shabbat meal. That means that Jesus is actually having his last Sabbath meal with his people, the day before the triumphal entry, and if you will, then six days before his execution. Now, that puts it in a very different thing, because what that means is this is a feast you would expect to have. Now, you don't cook this feast. Very different, by the way. Be careful what places you go to in Israel, because obviously if you go to a place that caters to the kosher, which most do, you might get something that looks a little bit like cat food, uh, to be honest. I mean, they, they kind of, you know, they, they'll give it to you, and it comes out of can, and Suzanne can show you. Uh, no, and the idea of it is, is that they don't cook. Well, here's the thing. It is against the rules to light a fire. It's a, it's a break Shabbat. However... You go to a place that's run, and a lot of the Orthodox will go to Gentile-run 
hotels. And the reason is because it's not against the law, the Sabbath law, for a Gentile to cook. It's just against the law for an Orthodox. So, you know, hey, I want cooked food, so that works well for me. And the people are saying, where, where is he? I mean, come on, he should be here any time, right? He's from Galilee, so he's probably queuing up with the rest of us to do this, isn't he? Meanwhile, they're looking to try to figure out how to nail him down. And Jesus is actually having his feast at the last Sabbath before his murder. And he's there with his own dissenter. Judas is among his crew. By the way, also there, and those are the people that are, fo- that are focused on, is Lazarus and, might I say, the M&M sisters. Mary and Martha, or Martha and Mary. It's interesting, Martha is almost always mentioned first, but we always call Mary first, and the reason is the event that we see in front of us, to be honest. His family, these three people, are the focus of this section. Now, the girls are remarkably different, and don't miss this. Like sisters, I mean, I think of Deborah and her sister. It's like you can almost, I, 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 I think of my two children, and I think you just can't get more opposite than them, can you? And I realized that traditionally they kind of fall into different categories. But let me kind of lay out a couple for you to kind of put things into mind here. Uh, there's the logistical. That's the person who does the legwork. There's the logical. They're going to get her done kind of thing. And then there's the lauding. You know, that's the feet-falling, teary-eyed praiser, the emotional one. And it always tends to be that you got one of each somehow in all of that. I mean, if you met Deborah and her sister, it would be very easy to identify. You met my children, it, you'd have to be pretty much have a lobotomy to not figure that one out. Now, chances are, to be honest, we're all kind of a concoction, a recipe of both of these to some degree. And by the way, some churches will cater to one side or some form of recipe more than another. There's like the power praise places, you know, where it's like 95 minutes of praise and three minutes of teaching, and then there's the handing of the, you know, of the tithe box kind of thing. Uh, you know, and because there are people that's like, it's an emotional thing, and I get stirred, and whoo, I'm going to get my praise on, and we're going to do some laps, and I'm going to sweat, and we're going to whoo, and you know what I like? And I'm like, that was church. And for the Marys, that actually would make some sense. And the Marthas, on the other hand, are kind of going, how long is this again? Somebody grabs a tambourine and there's a uh-oh that goes on in their heart, you know? They're like, oh no, not that. But then there's also the ones that are kind of, if you will, that are more practical. Now, I'm not saying that praise is impractical, but we're going to see here that it's certainly going to be considered that. Now, on a particular person like that, they kind of like things where it's kind of like you get in and, it, by the way, pray stops at this time, pray starts at this time, this happens here, you kneel here, you stand here, you fight, 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 whatever. And here are the songs. And I want the songs listed by number on the side, on this like little marquee thing that's been there for like 800 years. And then, you know, by the time we're done, I know that if that guy goes one minute over, someone's second to watch because, hey, I just like it like that. And the Marthas love that. Now, again... Those are like boiled down to very distinct extremes. And chances are every church is going to lean a little bit one way or the other, but that's what we have here. And I want you to realize, paraded before us, if you will, is a solid representation of the female version of the Law and the Prophets. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus had up on his mountaintop of glory, Elijah and Moses, and now he has, in his house prior to his murder, he has Mary and Martha. Interesting that they both are here, and it is in this environment the religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus. Like, hey, if you find him, tell me, Lord, I will take care of it. You know what I mean? You know, that's happening. And there are other people going, well, where is he? Come on, I want to hear from him. Well, that's where we get as we get into chapter 12, verse 1. Then, or if you will, uns, the word in the Greek, it means just so. And so, 
six days before the Passover, Jesus comes to Bethany. Now, if this is a Shabbat meal, what that means is that he's had to get there before sundown because, you know, once Sabbath hits, you can only take a certain amount of the distance basically from Bethany to Jerusalem. You couldn't travel more than that. He's 27 miles away in Ephraim. That's what we saw at the end of the last chapter. But it's interesting is this sixth day is also a very important day in a couple ways. One is it's the day you separate the lamb and prepare him for slaughter. Interesting. Now, how do you do that? You mark him. You mark him to say he's acceptable for that sacrifice. And then he waits. On the same day, Jesus will be marked. And he will wait. Interesting, it is also the same time for what it's worth. That's Exodus 12, verses 3 and 6. You'll see that. But we'll also see that it's the same time during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, is separated because they want him to actually... I mean, let's face it. He's going to offer a sacrifice for the sins of the entire uh, population. And so you want to make sure he does it right. Let's face it. He goes in there. and I mean, he does too, because if he goes in there and he doesn't do it right, he dies. And someone has a rope on him and just pulls him out. So, I mean, that's... Okay, that's good motivation. And Jesus has trekked 27 miles in the last day or two to make his way down here to make sure he's there by Sabbath and he's shown up at Bethany. Now, verse 2. There they made him supper. Now, notice it wasn't just she made him supper. There was a they there. And we read that Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then from verses, well, from 3 to 8, it's Mary. And then, by the way, don't miss it. From verses 9 to 11, it's Lazarus one more time. So we get to focus on the M&M sisters and their brother Lazarus. In verse 2, what we read is it's supper. Martha is serving. Now, a little different from the last time we saw Martha. And by the way, is it getting cold in here again? Does anyone want to try to override the heater? Do you know how to do that? No, no. If anyone's like good with those kind of things, it's in the kitchen. Go ahead and set the place on fire. It's okay with me. The last time, and please hear me on this, the last time that we kind of saw a situation like this was back in Luke chapter 10, and there was another dinner, and there were the same, it was the same company. Martha again was serving, and Mary again was at Jesus' feet. In which case, by the way, Martha's distracted is the term we read. She's distracted because her sister is just chilling with Jesus sitting at his feet. And Martha, imagine every time she brought something out, got a little bit more ticked off about it. So finally, it just exploded out of her mouth without any form of filter. Because it tells us in Matthew 12:34 that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It doesn't just say if it's a little bit in your heart, it's going to fall out your mouth. By that time, it actually, your mouth is the overflow valve to the abundance of what your heart contains. Which is always scary, which means when it falls out your mouth, I'm like, dang, I have that much in my heart? Jesus, Jesus. Will you tell my sister to help me? Now, don't miss this. Because when we think about what's like the one event that we think of for Martha, it's usually that event, sad as it is. Not the great event in the last chapter where she actually said, if you had been here, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he'll give you. I mean, there's faith in that statement. We don't know her for that. We know her for being the grumpy gal making sandwiches. And Jesus does rebuke her, but he does it tenderly. And he goes, Martha, Martha, you were distracted or you were troubled by so many things or worried about so many things, but only one thing really is required and Mary's chosen the better service. He defends her. He defends Mary. But please don't miss this because in chapter 10 of Luke, 
Martha is looking at Mary and going, why can't you be more Martha? And by the way, that can happen. You look and you realize, I mean, if my sister could be up here helping me, this would be a lot easier for me. And we recognize the problem with that. As a matter of fact, it's right there in the text and Jesus defends her. You know what's interesting, though? From verses 3 to 8, as we look at this amazing sacrifice that Mary offers, we have a tendency to think the other way and think it's okay. Like, why couldn't Martha just be more Mary? I mean, come on. And there are going to be people, and this is why I think it's so exciting to look at this text with you guys today. There's some of you, you're just never going to be the Mary that's in this text. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean you don't pour forth the abundance of the passion of your heart. It just may not look the same. But do you realize that every time you see Martha, she's serving? Falling at the feet of Jesus, she's even serving there because she goes and gets her sister. And it is so easy to overlook the fact that Mary's not the only one offering her sacrifice today. Martha is too. See, never overlook the constant, consistent service of a Martha simply for those beautiful, brave, and grave moments that are offered in some form of prodigious, you know, exuberance like we see here with Mary. Because let's face it, those are the ones that tend to get highlighted because they're pretty awesome to look at and they look great on film. It's always, when you roll it, you know, it's like when you watch a movie the third or fourth time, and I'm not encouraging you to do that. Sometimes it happens in our house. When it's then you kind of realize things like, oh, wow, that girl's been in the background the whole time doing this. And that's what we see here. Please note this, that Martha is still doing an act of worship for the same reason as Mary is. See, what both of them saw was they watched Jesus conquer the grave of their brother in front of them. And because they saw Jesus conquer that grave in front of them, all they could do was praise him. And the way they did it was very different. By the way, we're going to see Lazarus has quite a ministry too here. All three of them are going to be actively in ministry. And don't miss that every one of them is active in ministry, though you may not be seeing it. Now, hear me on this. Though Martha was distracted by her much serving, now she's not. She's simply serving. But don't miss that Martha's act of worship was just the same in regards to that. We went, well, the marriage is going to be you know, written down for us to read forever. Well, so is Martha. It's right here as well. And Lazarus, we read, by the way, as well, notice, was one of those who sat at the table with Jesus. Now, do you know that in Scripture we have no written word ever spoken by Lazarus? I mean, of all the times we see him, we have, I mean, we don't know if the guy actually ever had, I mean, we assume he had a mouth because he's probably eating with Jesus, but in there, we've never heard a word come out of him recorded in Scripture. But I do want you to realize this, that there is time to serve, and then there is also time to sit. And both of them need to happen. What's interesting is, is that each one could be tempted to simply uniquely be that. Lazarus could be the sitter, or Mary could be the sitter. Martha could be the servant. But in that, by the way, there needs to be both for all of us. There needs to be times where we are serving. And by the way, sitting at the feet of Jesus is part of service. But in that, it's not the time of service that we see with Lazarus here. Because Mary is going to be inspired to motion here in a moment. Now, verse 3. Then Mary. Now, the scripture makes clear that there are three predominant Marys in the New Testament. 
Mary, by the way, the root word Mara, like we see in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, it means bitter. Those three people each have sort of, if you will, sort of a highlight moment. We all kind of have our archetypical moment. We have Jesus' mother, Jesus' mom. We have Mary Magdalene, and of course we have the M&M Mary here. Mary's mom, we might say she's best known for Christmas. Thank you, thank you, by the way. Mary Magdalene, we kind of known her for being the gal that Jesus had cast out seven demons, but more specifically, the intimate garden encounter that we see in John chapter 20. But the M&M Mary, this Mary, let's be honest, it's not that she's known first for being rebuked by her sister. It's not that she's known first for being the one that rebuked Jesus, by the way, uh, when she fell at his feet and said, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. She's known for this moment right here. And I do find it interesting because of the three times that we see this Mary, by the way, did you know that you don't find her at the cross of Jesus or at the grave of Jesus or any of that? She's not mentioned again by name after this. Now, that doesn't mean she wasn't at those places. In other words, God's like, well, I could have listed her among the crew, but this is what I want you to know her for, is this. And I look at this and I realize that of the three times we see Jesus, she's always at his, or we see Mary, she's always at Jesus' feet. Do you know what's interesting is of those three times we see Mary at Jesus' feet, twice she's rebuked for it? Do you find that interesting? So, this Mary, the one that's known for this, took a pound. The word, by the way, in the Greek is the word litra. You want to guess what get, word we get from that? Yes. Yeah. Litra, a very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, a litra, by the way, is roughly that of about 12 ounces, about really a third of a liter. So this litra is a third of a liter, if you will. And I've done some little bit of uh, some math on this, and the reason is because obviously Judas has appraised its value. Now, isn't it interesting? If this is an extremely costly oil, how does anyone identify the smell of it unless they've smelled it before? It isn't like they go, that smells expensive. Now, if I were to look at this and realize how much it's actually contained, what we're looking at, the size of it, and if I'm going to compare this, by the way, to the Matthew text that seems to be the parallel, Matthew 26.6, of this same event, we read that it comes in a specific container called alabaster. Has anyone ever seen alabaster before? Okay. Or have you seen, for instance, what a particular size of a litre would look like? No. Okay. Well, guess what? You will today. What I have in my possession here is spike nerd. According to what we have here in our text and in our appraisal, for weight, it is three to four times the value of gold. Now, don't try to jump me later for it. You're not going to get it today. But this is it here, and this is an alabaster container roughly the size of a litre. This is what you're looking at. Traditionally, they were put with what was called a neck, and you had to literally break the neck to pour it out. It was sealed. Not sealed like with a cork, so you could pop it out and put a little on here and there, you know, for the, one of those sweet nights of the harvest. It was something that was kept specifically. And I'd like you to consider what we see is that Mary's got a treasure. Now, 
This is the first time we see this. It isn't like Mary's kind of running around and no person in their right mind walks around and goes, hey, everybody's got what I've got here. But somewhere Mary's kept this. Traditionally, by the way, this is only used for one of two events. One is it's a dowry. In other words, it's actually something to sweeten the deal to make a girl a little bit more marryable. Sorry, I'm just trying to be blunt, but simple with it. In other words, it's like, well, what do you think of her? Oh, you know, she's pretty cool, but let me just, oh, she has this too. Oh, yeah, well, I definitely want her now. Now, that's the kind of idea. Now, what it tells us is that he actually says, when Judas appraises it, he says it's actually worth 300 denarii. That's 300 days' wages. Now, the average person, I'm told, by the way, works 300 to 310 days a year. Now, what that means is that's a year's salary. Well, how about that? Let's put this whole thing together. If I'm going to put it together like this, well, then I have to look and say, well, what is the average median annual salary for London? And this is going to really bum you out. 48,023 pounds. Now, some of you are thinking, I think my entire row doesn't collectively make that. But what that would mean is, is that this thing in her day was worth 48 grand. Now, that's a lot of money. But she said if it was four grand, it would be worth a lot of money. And she has this thing, and by the way, she gets one shot with this. Like a traditional sacrifice, like your sin sacrifice, the neck is to be broken. And when the neck is broken, there's no putting this thing back together. It's like Humpty Dumpty. Once it falls, it's done. And she's, and once you pour it, you pour it. And Mary has had this thing with her. She has a treasure. And up to this point, she's been waiting. And I wonder if it has been for, for marriage. If it has been, it would have probably been something given as an heirloom. And if it was the case, what that means is that Mary would have actually been one of those, could have been, I'm just playing it out a little bit, she could have been one of those teen girls that, you know, kind of like would look at it and go, someday my prince will come and I'll be able to break this. Yeah, something like that, I don't know. I have daughters, so you can see where that comes from. Of course, one, one, because one's the Mary, the other's the Martha. If you put that on her, she'll probably want to hit you. Now, let me just say this. Try this with me. Nutistechis. Try that. Nutistechis. Yatamansi. Nutistechis. Yatamansi. Nutistechis yakadamansi. That was it. Notice the meaning was nard. That's the official name for spike nard. It's the cousin of the valerian root. Some of you are familiar with valerian. It's a sedative, it is a muscle relaxer, and it's used for people that have, uh, that have problems sleeping. It's also a sister to honeysuckle. It's intensely aromatic. But the problem is where you get it. 4,000 meters up on the Himalayan, somewhere between Nepal and Bhutan. Go get it. Good luck. And then you have to crush it. It's blood red in its purest form, and the moment it's added to oil, it becomes amber. By God's grace, one of the mayors of a friend of mine in Israel gave this to me. But I'm going to give you an idea. It's also intensely aromatic. Pick a number between 1 and 10. Okay, you asked for it. Here we go. 1, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. 
seven, eight, nine, ten. Just tell me when you can smell it. Okay, so is everybody smelling it yet? Yeah, if not, you can go sit near my wife. Apparently, she's very well aware of it. This isn't the first time my wife has smelled this, by the way. Can you smell that? That was seven little pumps. Ten. Did I? No, seven. Did I do ten? <sighs> Foolish things of the world that can sound the wise. All right. Well, look at you got a bonus. Look at three free. Uh, now, hear me on this. We're in a room, the traditional house, I think Jonathan, Jonathan can probably even tell you this, is roughly about two-thirds this size. The entire house is going to be that. Unless, of course, you've built upon it, you have another room, but the room's not going to be larger than this. Now imagine taking the entirety of this and breaking it on the feet of Jesus. Could you imagine? Now, you're probably aware that what would happen is you would become what's called saturated. Now, there is one other time where God intended... By the way, have you thought about how cool God is when it comes to your nose? Some of you are Italian, like, kind of like me in this sense. We, we got hardware. We come with hardware. And it's um, how your ability, your olfactory, and your how somewhere in this, it brings you to memories and places and certain things. I, I, I'm like big on smells. Maybe it's because I have the nose up the size I do. People can park a car under it. So... You know, I'm like, so, I, I'm like, there'll be seasons and I'll buy like some kind of particular scent for the time and I'll be like, it'll remind me of that Christmas. I mean, this is, I'm just like that for whatever reason. If, you know, if that's weird, that's weird. But I just, I, um, the idea is there's certain scents that God delegates for certain times. Like, for instance, there's a certain smell that is unique to the incense of prayer for a priest when he goes in to offer the daily prayer. Um, we know of a particular guy named Zakaria who offers that particular prayer. And he's in there so long, people are freaking out. And when we read the conversation, I'm like, that's not a very long conversation. But hear me on this. He came in with two different things. He came in with this specific incense. God said, by the way, only for this. Don't make it for anything else. It's only for this. And he would go into an enclosed area. Originally, it was the tabernacle. And there were coals. And ultimately, he would put a coal in there. And the idea was that he was to offer prayers until the incense stopped. Now, he was in an enclosed area. What would happen is that that would rise to the top. And then ultimately, it would start to descend. And as it started to descend, this beautiful smell would saturate him. So that when he walked out from that time of prayer, you could smell it on him. You'd be like, you've been praying, haven't you? Imagine what it would be like. Because that smell was unique to that. That if I had this amazing encounter with God in prayer right there before the, the Kaddish Kaddishim, the Holy of Holies, and I was praying this, and I could smell this for the first time, then from that point on, any time a priest would go to pray, I would want to go smell him when he came out if that makes sense, just to remind me. Now, if that sounds weird, you could be thankful it's not that time and you're not that guy. But God does this amazing thing with sense. Now, if they have purified themselves for the sacrifice, Jesus will not bathe again until his crucifixion, which means this smell will be on him on the cross. 
And I think, what a great kindness of God to do this. But this girl has this amazing treasure that, by the way, for her is much more than money. You're aware of this. If this was about marriage, there was one other place. Remember I said there were two events? You know what the other one was? Death. You would break it upon a person at death that you love so much that you were leaving your life with. Why Jesus would refer to it and say, she's done this for my burial. But understand for her, this was like what she was worth. Now let me say this. Every one of you has got a treasure. And it will be unique. But you know if you're going to be like Mary, you're going to break it on Jesus, it's never going to come back the same. You'll never be able to take it back and try to make it what it was. Now, you may miss this, but Martha's been offering hers every time we see her. Martha took her treasure and offered it to him in her service. Mary took her treasure and broke it upon him in praise. Now, don't miss this, because it says, and the whole house was filled with the smell. Never underestimate. Ladies, let me talk to you for a moment here. Never underestimate the power of the effect on your whole house it is when you pour your treasure upon Christ. The whole house is going to be affected by it. We'll be able to smell that. When Jesus sang on the cross, we could still smell it. But you know what's really easy to miss? And I'm playing the unsung hero here because I have a wife that's a Martha to some degree. But, and I can't help but think of this. And she's an amazing Martha. She's also, by the way, a pretty awesome Mary. She just doesn't know it as much. Is that everybody was affected by Martha too. The whole house was affected by Martha because she was serving. And everyone was blessed for it. It's just easy to overlook. But the house was filled with the smell. Now let me ask you this. In Corinthians, it tells us, by the way, that we're the sense of life to those who are being saved and the sense of death to those who are perishing. But I wonder, what would my house smell like if you came in? I mean, if you could kind of smell the atmosphere, if you will. What would you smell? I mean, would you smell worry? Which I've learned is dragging the... Well, dragging the things that aren't clear tomorrow into the responsibilities of today to the joy of today? Would you smell defeat? Would you smell heaviness? Would you smell stress? Or would you smell the oil of gladness? Do you know why Mary's able to pour this out? Because she just watched Jesus conquer the death in front of her. And when she watched Jesus conquer the grave in front of her, all she could do was pour forth this. When Martha saw Jesus conquer that grave in front of her, all she could do was serve him like this. And you realize they are pouring forth their treasures because they were convinced that Jesus was a greater treasure than the one they possessed. Now, in this thing we read that now at this distinct moment that the lowest place on a human body, by the way, the feet, the highest of gifts, that of spikenard, meat, and at this moment Mary smells like God. Mary's praise has been so united with Jesus. This elaborate, extravagant offer that at this moment you couldn't smell them apart. Then 
one of his disciples. Notice, by the way, it tells us he's still a student. It doesn't say that Judas was a fake student. My wife and I have both taught secondary school. I can tell you that a bad student is still a student. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why? Why this? Don't miss. I mean, obviously the rest of it's the valuation. Do you know that six times in Scripture we have recorded something being said by Judas? Six is a number, of course, of men. Some of you are familiar with that. And here's his first. This is how Judas steps onto the scene. In, I mean, obviously he speaks six things more than Lazarus. Uh, in this, the first of them is, what a waste. Why are you doing this? The second, by the way, for what it's worth, and when we read that in, in Matthew's text, what a waste, Matthew 26, 14. The very next verse, he goes to the religious leaders and says, how much will you give me to betray him? Interesting. He's valued both. And I think we can learn a lot from that. But we do learn some things in this, obviously. Why was this fragrant oil not sold and given to the poor? Extravagant acts of praise are seldom practical, but they're never wasted. You will never waste anything you pour on Jesus. Never. But let's be honest. Judas would have sounded so practical. He could have sounded so spiritual. Don't you realize this money could have fed hungry people, could have housed the homeless, could have actually put pastors in positions of being paid. Could you realize we could have bought churches with this? We could have bought orphanages with this. And you realize Jesus never says those things are bad, but Jesus is well aware of the fact that this is, I mean, imagine this is about as intimate of a moment as anyone is having with Jesus ever in text. And she is there at this moment, and they are united in the most pure and holy and surrendered ways. And some guy wants to jump into the middle of it. Interesting, because it reminds me of Jesus' meeting with Elisha and Moses when it's Peter's turn. We're like, hey, good thing I'm here. And you could see them going, this guy's going to be the Pope? Anyway, but, you know. Now, the irony of this whole thing is that he is nailing down and he is criticizing Mary's praise. And yet, Judas means praise. Now, God tells us in Jeremiah thirty-nine, eighteen, that your life will be a prize. David would say in Psalm 16, 5, God, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Paul would say in Philippians 3, 14, that you know what? I haven't obtained what I want to obtain yet. But I leave what is behind and I press forward to the prize. Now we read in verse 6 that Judas said this not because he actually was caring about the poor. It wasn't like Judas himself was like, hey, come on you guys. We've got a poor campaign after this. He said this because he was a thief. And this tells me of a couple of very important things. He was called one of the twelve. He was called a disciple, but he was never saved. And there are people, by the way, who want to play this idea that you're a Christian and you could get blindsided by a demon and suddenly get possessed. I think that makes impotent the God that you actually surrendered to. I absolutely not into that. And they'll say, well, what happened to Judas? I'm like, Judas was never a follower of Jesus other than both his feet. He was as external with his actions as the religious leaders were, but there was nothing happening inside that was proper. 
Now, what we do read instead here, if you realize it, is that Judas never lost his salvation. He was not a Christian helpfully possessed and blindsided by Satan. He was a poser. He was a pilfer. He was a pickpocket to the purse of Jesus. That's what he was. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 6, verse 64, Jesus says, we read about Jesus from John, that, John, that Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray him. Jesus knew from the moment he picked him. And by the way, it's important, because there are some that are like, ha ha, I'm chosen by God. I'm like, ha, Jesus chose Judas, so you better be careful. Notice Jesus' response in verse 7. It was a little less tender than you might say it was to Martha. You could see the compassion when he looks and goes, Martha, Martha, you are so distracted. You're so worried. Dragging the uncertainties of tomorrow into the enjoyment of today. You're so worried about so many, and you're troubled by so many things. But here he just says, back off! No wonder why this guy jumps out of the room and then goes, oh, what will you give me to betray him? Because that's the next thing he does. Leave her alone. She's kept this for my burial. Hey, you'll have the poor with you. Guess what? In a week from now, you'll be able to go and take care of that poor. You won't have me like this then. A week from this day, they're going to be bawling their eyes out because they just watched Jesus crucified right prior. And there are going to be girls that are going to be mixing another mixture and waiting for sunrise so they don't break Sabbath law so they can get out of there and anoint that body. Now, last couple of verses, and let's bring this to close. Can I just say this? If you are a Martha, thank you. Be a great one. Or a Marty, if you want, so you don't feel whatever. The body of Christ needs people to carry things set up, clean up, tear down, make flyers, help with the website. You know, there's a there's an endless supply of things. And by the way, as you probably guess, I'm probably a little bit more of a Mary at times, and therefore I really appreciate Martha's. But be but break what's precious to you before the feet of Jesus in your service. You have a treasure, and it's no less precious in the sight of God. But if you're a Mary, or a Mario, if you want, dude, this is not the place for you to be overly British in praise. Dare I say it that way? I mean, it's like, look, at, go for it in a way that doesn't distract someone. But man, be extravagant. Well, you might get criticized. You might even get criticized by family members. You might get criticized by the religious. You might be criticized by people that call themselves other Christians. And they'll say something in love like, don't you dare go overboard. And I'd say you can't walk on water until you do. Now, a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. That's Jesus. And they came, by the way, so they're all showing up at this particular Sabbath meal, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. Now, notice this as we get to our last couple of verses, that it wasn't just that Martha was ministering and that Mary was ministering, but Lazarus was too. His, by the way, was in testimony. So you have one person who is pouring forth elaborate praise upon Jesus by breaking this precious ointment at, the, at his feet and wiping with her hair. You have another person who is serving silently, uh, in this case, and offering all of this before him, of which, by the way, Jesus also takes note of. And then we have Lazarus, who, by the way, people are coming to Christ because of it. All three of those are fantastic ministries, don't you think? And all three need to be active. Now I say, by the way, God's going to make you a recipe of all of them, but one of them will probably rise to the top for each of us. Now, 
I do find this interesting because it does prove a point that Jesus said in Luke 16 in that parable about Lazarus and this wealthy man. Listen to this text. And now again, we're at our last couple of verses. Luke 16:27. Jesus says, uh, as, well, in this case, it's the, the rich man, who, by the way, had five brothers, like Caiaphas, who had married into that. He said, I beg you, therefore, Father, speaking to Abraham, that you would send him to my father's house, speaking of Lazarus, the character in his parable. I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to them, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Well, they said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And these verses prove it. Because there was nobody that was more astute in the law of Moses, in the Torah and the Haftorah, in the law and the prophets, than the religious leaders of this day. And it tells us here that they, knowing the law of Moses, but don't know it in their hearts, they see Lazarus and they want to kill him again. He goes, look it. If someone were to rise from the dead, certainly they would repent. And what we read here is, no, no, not really. And there was a reason, because it tells us here, on account of him, that's Lazarus, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now, by the time we're done with this, this is what we have. We have a Martha now who has broken her alabaster jar, even as a Mary. Mary, who has broken her alabaster jar, who, by the way, look how we sang that today. Break this alabaster heart, pouring forth its perfume, fill the room with the fragrance of a heart that worships you. Now that was written because of this kind of text. Well, you realize it's like the one thing we each have as a heart. That is, by the way, once it's broken, it doesn't come back together the same way. You know that. Are we really willing to let God do that? Because a broken and contrite spirit is a sacrifice God never rejects. No. We do have Mary with a broken vial. For a week, that house is going to be filled with that. Even after Jesus' resurrection, that house is still going to smell like it. It is going to saturate the walls of the porous materials that it's made of. And you think, wow. Would you go to that house just to smell it? The soldiers who were gambling for the clothes, would they smell it as they were gambling? When Jesus is hanging there on the cross, could he smell it and think, a week ago, a week ago, a precious sister anointed my feet to prepare me for burial. Martha has had her heart broken and she's seen Jesus conquer the grave as well. Because in both cases, they had a treasure but they saw Jesus as a greater one. And so she offers her sacrifice of service. Lazarus, firsthand seeing the grave conquered, called out from it. And from that, he would sit at the feet of Jesus and just listen. And remember, there is time to sit and there is time to serve. Please do not neglect either. Before God framed the universe and poured concrete into the world we know, as we say it that way, if you will, before there was anything but, before you were anything but a desire in God's heart, God the Father had a treasure, and that was His Son. But see, there was another treasure. 
Matthew 13, 44 tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field for which God so wanted that he sells all that he has to buy the entire field. And then he'll say again in verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls and he found one of such great price that he went and sold all that he had to get it. See, that treasure is you. And in the sight of the Father, that the treasure be his son initially, he saw you as such a precious treasure, he would give his son just to get you. So how valuable can you make yourself in the sight of anyone else in comparison? And everyone has a treasure. If I really recognize how Jesus has conquered the grave in front of me, dying for my sins and raising from the grave, how can I not find myself worshiping? Now look, at maybe what you think you have isn't worth much. Maybe you think it's only a couple loaves or five loaves and a couple fish or maybe it's only two minas or I can bake a cake or I can have a little time and a listening heart or hands that could just build stuff. Or, But did you notice in all of those cases Jesus doesn't have a problem taking special note of them? It was the widow who offered her two minas that Jesus said, hey, for all the people giving in abundance, this guy gave out of her necessity. I couldn't help but think that to him that was still the breaking of the alabaster for him. The kid with his loaves and fish. Here's the point. Stop trying to evaluate it yourself because that sounds like Judas, doesn't it? How much it's really worth in the sight of men. If you really have recognized that God has conquered the grave for you, dying for your sins and raising again, then what you have, is it really worth dying with compared to what God has to offer in His Son? As we pray now to conclude this, we'd just like to encourage you today to let God break what He needs to break. Pour it at His feet. And let everyone in this house be blessed and in your own at home. Because the world was never the same because of this act. And to this day, we read it, and there are Marys all over the world that read this and go, yeah, yeah, that's me right there. But can I say, if you're a Martha, there should be Marthas going, yeah, that's me in the back, but you know what? I'm there too. I'm in the story. I'm right there. There are Lazaruses who sit there, and you realize God's going to throw you right in the middle of people, and people are going to go, what's so different about you? You're like, well, I used to be dead. That's the difference. And on account of you, on account of you, many will believe in Jesus. Have you accepted this gift of Jesus Christ? Are you still trying to hold on to a treasure? Because if you seek to keep your life, you're going to lose it. But if you have said yes to Jesus, when I say, we'll say yes with everything. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I thank you for not just Mary's example, though I thank you for her example. I thank you also for Martha's example. I thank you for Lazarus' example in this. I thank you that each one of us has a treasure. We have one life to live. And we're going to spend it somewhere. We have faith. You tell us to each man is given a measure of faith. And yet, 
we can be so foolish in where we spend it. But Lord, it is a treasure, that faith, because it allows us the ability of influence and surrender. And I pray, Lord, today, here in this room, as faith comes also by hearing and that your word, even here in this room right now, you're instilling greater faith in us, more faith. May we be willingly broken. And in being willingly broken, that today we would pour forth the perfume of our surrender, however that looks our style. And Lord, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being able to be in the house at all. May the merry parts of each of us be extravagant and whole out in our praise and adoration of you. May the Martha parts of us be completely willing to serve without keeping score of who is and who isn't. May the Lazarus parts of us be willing to sit at your feet in silence and listen, but also to be quick to testify in front of others as you call us to the stand, as you call us to the stand. So, reignite us in that, I pray. And hear within the sound of this voice that there be any or many who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. And today you know you need it. Today you recognize there's a choice to be made. Would you pray this prayer with me? God in heaven, I come to you a sinner, guilty, stained. But you want me anyways. And I believe out of that love you have for me, you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. And as He died on the cross for me, my bill was paid. My guilt was punished. And as He was buried, my sin and guilt were buried with Him. And when He rose from the grave, He left it there. And has every right to be the risen Lord and Master of my life. So I hand you the treasure of who I am, and I ask you to make something beautiful out of it because you are a greater treasure. You are the greatest treasure. So I hand this to you now and I say, have me confessing Jesus as my Savior, my ransom, my Lord. Have me. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Oh Lord, you've heard that prayer. You've heard us say yes. As we sing one last song and dismiss, minister to us, Lord. And may we walk out of here so ready to serve you. May we enter, Lord, always your gates, Lord, with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. For next week, Lord, when you have us, whatever that next meeting is that you'll have us here, may we do the inventory prior. May we be ready. So that, Lord, it isn't like we just come and go, all right, now fix me. But rather, Lord, that we recognize that's your job. So fix us, Lord, and then that may we come in, not in some kind of spiritual flu, but rather, Lord, ready to praise you 
and the way you've ordained for us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do one last song and we'll conclude. I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to be in the Word with you, for the honor of being your pastor. We have so much to pray for. God of power and might, all-consuming fire, you are my delight, you are my desire,